There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 16th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Russian's permanent representative uh, to the United Nations Security Council seemed somewhat taken aback yesterday when he spoke to reporters who wanted to know when Putin is going to surrender. And what? Will Vladimir Putin no, surrender? I, I heard the first part. And what's surrender what? Surrender your assault and barbaric war against Ukraine. Will you stop in the sake of humanity? When, when the goals of the, of the special military operations are achieved, it will stop. It was, uh, it was announced from the very beginning. Uh, I must tell you that uh, I, I appreciate your humane approach, but uh, I didn't see that humane approach. Uh, in all these eight years when Ukrainian forces uh, Ukrainian armed forces and radicals were shelling and bombing uh, <coughs> Donetsk and Lugansk uh, without any reproach, basically any reproach from the international community. Vasily Nebenzia spinning the now familiar Russian argument that it is only in Ukraine to defend a downtrodden people from a Nazi-led government. Russia's war is with Ukraine, although that very nearly changed last weekend when an attack on a military base saw Russian missiles fall just 20 kilometres short of Poland, a member of NATO. When we see actually fighting going on close to NATO borders, there's always a risk for incidents and accidents. And therefore, we have to make every effort to prevent such incidents and accidents. And if they happen, to make sure that they don't spiral out of control and create really dangerous situations. We are very closely monitoring uh, the uh, airspace uh, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, the border areas uh, uh, around NATO and our military commanders also have uh, the lines uh, to their Russian commanders to help to prevent incidents and accidents and also prevent them from spiraling out, uh, out of control if they uh, happen. That's NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. In Dublin, the Joint Directors Committee on European Affairs was told yesterday by the Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland, Larissa Garasko, what Ukraine needs most. What we need most of all, it's non-fly zone. 
over Ukraine. Ukraine's message to Ireland in the Oireachtas yesterday, Ukraine's message to the world for that matter. I think we should also play a part. Um, it, it's it's all well and good us talking about uh, facilitating and expediting uh, membership uh, of the European Union, but I suppose it's it's where we can help and we can facilitate properly that that needs to happen. TDs were sympathetic. That's Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraku. Now, the world's fear is, however, that uh, no fly zone over Ukraine would mean NATO would probably shoot down Russian planes in Ukrainian airspace. Russia would retaliate. That would result in World War III. World War III would be nuclear. Nuclear war would mean the end of the world. NATO, which seems, or some of the members of these alliance are hypnotised by Russian aggression, we hear a lot of conversations about the Third World War that allegedly it could start if NATO will close the Ukrainian sky for Russian missiles. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's appeal to the world to support uh, no-fly zone over Ukraine. Back to Dublin, where one TD says it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when NATO agrees to a no-fly zone. We've seen throughout this devastating war is an inevitability. There was opposition on a European level for full um, full sanctions when it comes to things like SWIFT. That changed. There was opposition at a European level for providing lethal equipment to the Ukrainian army. That changed. And now we see in relation to banning immediately Russian oil and gas imports uh, to a blockade of seaports to, fail, to refusing to receive Russian-flagged vessels and indeed, ultimately, the implementation of a no-fly zone um, and many people either stating reasons why they can't do that or why they shouldn't do that and I am increasingly of the conclusion that all these things are inevitable. Now let's hear from those two TDs we've just been listening to speaking at uh, that Oireachtas committee hearing yesterday. Fine Gael's Neil Richmond first of all you said there that a no-fly zone over Ukraine is inevitable. So what might that mean? Could this be the beginning of the end of the world? I don't think necessarily it's it's useful to be that dramatic to start off with Mike but that is certainly one of the risks and it's not something I a conclusion I'm coming to in any sort of joy or assertiveness. It's a very sad state of affairs but the the grinding Russian war in Ukraine continues now into its third week. The Russian forces are being matched um, by the Ukrainians on the ground but they do have dominance in the air and we've seen the repeated requests from the Ukrainian government repeated by their ambassador to us at the committee yesterday and an awful lot of political leaders and military experts have been talking about the potential and possibility of a no-fly zone similar to what we saw uh, in Serbia during the Yugoslav Wars 20-30 years ago as the one way to really temper the ambitions of the Russian military and I just fear that a lot of things that people said weren't possible there was a reluctance to move on over the past two weeks we've seen people move on quickly you know be it in terms of sanctions in terms of kicking Russia fully out of SWIFT be it in terms of turning off Russian oil and gas I think that's going to be the next step I think we are edging ever closer to a no-fly zone. I don't say that with any relish. Um, And what happens after that, it's certainly an escalation or it could be a very quick uh, conclusion. But this is the big thing. Unlike the Yugoslav wars, we're dealing with a nuclear superpower that's being led by a 
despot of a leader and Vladimir Putin who sadly is capable of doing anything. Okay, I suppose the reason I put that question to you was not for the sake of being dramatic but I think that's the logic behind not supporting a no-fly zone for fear that this would turn nuclear. So let's imagine then for a second that it didn't. If it worked, would it end the war? And if so, uh, what would that mean? Well, I think if we look at it from a military basis that Ukraine and Russia, they're not fighting on a level playing field. Ukraine has uh, a relatively decent armed forces, very well armed by the West, but they're relying on, you know, volunteers, uh, an international brigade of 20,000 people, every man aged 18 to 60, whereas Russia is deploying one of the largest militaries in the world into Ukraine, backed up by serious air support. And as we've seen, they are shelling and bombing civilian targets and cities, and they're starting to use things like cluster bombs and thermoacetic weapons. And there is reports of chemical weapons and phosphate being detected as well, like the Russian forces used previously in Aleppo. There is potential, though, if a no-fly zone was introduced in a manner that provided parity that Russia wouldn't react in the most dramatic circumstances. And that is a calculation that military leaders in NATO are making. And I know, I understand, and I don't necessarily disagree with the reluctance, uh, Mike, and it's the same way there's a huge reluctance to push NATO forces into Ukraine. And even we saw last week the discussion about whether or not um, Polish fighter jets could be um, sent to Russia or to Ukraine. Is that too much of an escalation? Okay. Worst case scenario, no-fly zone, nuclear war, end of the world. Uh, Worst case scenario, uh, if there is not a a no-fly zone, uh, that the Russian onslaught continues and that they slowly uh, eliminate at least the adult population of Ukraine and possibly then, with the support of China, move on from there to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, Poland. Uh, Could there be any end to it? No, I think that's a very fair comment. We already see um, talking heads on Russian television saying how um, the Russian army could potentially move on from uh, Ukraine to the three Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, who've already been victims of hybrid warfare and cyber attacks from Russia and Belarus. We had the Moldovan ambassador in yesterday after the Ukrainian ambassador, and she said they, despite being a neutral country, live in a very clear fear that they could be next for a Russian invasion. They're right down on Crimea, right close to Odessa. They've taken in um, over 300,000 Ukrainian refugees already. There is no possible end to this. And we look back just to the outset of this war with Vladimir Putin's speech when he talked about restoring the greater Russian empire. He wasn't talking about the Soviet Union. He was going way further back to Mm. Zairus, Russia, and we're talking about countries like Georgia, which have already been invaded by Russia, as well as those in Eastern Europe who are extremely worried. And there's a very genuine fear. And as the Ukrainian ambassador said to us yesterday, Ukrainians are not just fighting for the survival of Ukraine, but they're fighting for the survival of Europe too. Okay, let's uh, go to Rory Amurku because uh, you sat through that evidence given to your committee uh, as well yesterday uh, and it seems from the discussion so far this morning that you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I suppose the good news that we had in the last while was the fact that President Zelensky saying that there are now serious negotiations, that the Russians are serious. Like We would like to think that there is a way out for them like, I think all of us anticipated um, that here the Russian onslaught, where, if it was to come, that it would have been fast and furious. We probably expected, as it looks like the expectation from Vladimir Putin's side was that they were going to win and win fast. 
and that can be the problem, I suppose, with uh, despotic dictators that sometimes they believe their own hype and probably taught in uh, parts of Ukraine that there would be a uh, a welcoming um, party out for them. But that hasn't been the case. And obviously we have to commend the courage and the bravery of um, of the Ukrainian people. But like what we do want is we want some sort of diplomatic solution to it. Uh, and as I say, what President Zelensky says has, has offered some sort of hope to us. Look, the fact is you've heard it from Joe Biden and others that um, it, the no-fly zone isn't on the agenda at this point in time. Like uh, Neil spoke earlier about the issue in relation to the Polish MiG fighters. And, and I suppose it's those rules of engagement in relation to proxy wars. Now, there's there's obviously a case of a huge amount of armaments and resources have been put uh, at the disposal of uh, the Ukrainian resistance. Um, and, like, obviously they're going to look for whatever moves can be made in relation to making their side stronger and weakening the Russians. And I suppose we have a major part to play and, and that's about basically cutting off the money supply as much as possible. And in fairness, uh, Ambassador Horasco had spoken about this list um, of businesses even here that they had provided to the Department of Foreign Affairs and um, that are still dealing um, with Russia and obviously, you know, providing mm. resources. And your committee has asked for that list. Uh, but is the problem with despotic leaders not that if they feel they're going to win, and they're going to win fast, that if it doesn't work out that way, then they'll still want to win and they'll be happy enough if they win slowly because that can be a whole lot worse because if it's a slow uh, victory, uh, perhaps the way we're seeing it play out at the moment, it also means that not only are lives lost, but the country is levelled. No, I, I, I accept that, obviously, you know, the worse it goes for the Russians, the more they have, you know, they escalate even their range of, of targets. And we've seen that in the last while. As I said, the, the hope is that there's also a recognition within Russia. This isn't exactly going to plan. And hopefully there are more calm heads and that they will look at some sort of way of getting off the hook. And I know that sounds terrible given the, you know, the set of circumstances that they have created by what is an utterly illegal invasion um, of of Ukraine mm. um, and that look as I say we have to do whatever part we can play in relation to weakening the Russians but, Okay but, but you heard from the ambassador yesterday to support that plea for uh, no fly zones. Zelensky was uh, speaking to the Canadian Parliament and uh, in the UK making exactly the same plea, reiterating it over and over. It's uh, this continuous call for that support. Neil Richmond says it's inevitable that that is what's going to happen. Do you agree with Neil Richmond? not necessarily uh, inevitable I, I would also I would also say that the reason that they, nobody wants to escalate that sort of situation because they're not sure of what the reaction will be they probably don't want to do it particularly at this point in time when it looks like there is a possibility of a negotiated settlement you know hmm. as much as, as we all okay. uh, we all hope that that is the case. I'm not sure how optimistic people are. Uh, there are positive soundings, but uh, outside of a settlement, Neil Richmond, if there isn't a no-fly zone, if there isn't NATO intervention, uh, would it not be better for the Ukrainians to surrender? Uh, I mean, they're lambs to the slaughter, really, aren't they? Not necessarily, Mike. And if you look at the fight they've put up over the last 20 years, you know, it's very easy for us to talk about this as a, at a removal, but these people are defending their homes, their families. You've seen 
the dozens of people, indeed many from Drada, who've gone back uh, to Ukraine to fight for their homeland, they live in perpetual fear of what a Russian regime would be. Russia's not a nice place to live um, if you are someone who's from the LGBTQ community, if you are someone who dissents against the regime. It is a barbaric dictatorship. Ukrainian people are fighting for a very clear reason that I don't think any of us can really appreciate. And saying that, would it not be better for them to give up? I think many of them would choose death rather than surrender. And they've been quite firm in that. And we only need to see the footage and the huge sacrifices of people. You know, I was dealing, I'm sure I'm really the exact same, we're dealing with Ukrainians here in Ireland who are bringing their family over and they're able to bring over their, their mum or their grandmother or their sister. But their brother and their dad and their grandfather and their sons are staying behind to fight amongst others. They are desperately defending their homeland and their homes and they're doing it in the face of an adversary who sees no problem in blowing up hospitals and targeting maternity units and putting out this horrendous type of Orwellian mm. doublespeak on the international stage. Well, that's it. Uh, we've seen uh, expectant mothers die in this. 97 children already uh, dead, according to President Zelensky, uh, and a lot more blood has to be shed uh, unless there is a settlement. And this is the very sad thing. You know, we all want the negotiations to succeed. We all want a diplomatic result. But I don't think Vladimir Putin wants that. I think he genuinely wants to take over Ukraine and the wider part of Eastern Europe. It's not that I think it. He stated that. He believes, and there's so many people have made it clearly, he believes Ukraine is part of Russia. He doesn't recognise them as a distinct people. And as Rory said, he was shocked that when the Russian speaking Ukrainian minority, including President Zelensky, um, they didn't exactly welcome the Russian invasion, which didn't just start three weeks ago, but started with little green men in 2014. Mm. Well, that's it uh, with uh, the annexation of Crimea. Yeah, and this is something that has been going on. And mm. the perpetuation of the hybrid warfare by Russia over the last decade, um, you know, our cyber attack here last year on the HSC all experts say it came from operatives within Russia and not necessarily the Russian state. However, the Estonian people saw their entire system of government and they are a heavily e-government-reliant society, so it entirely shut down their welfare system, their health system, everything else, for three days directly coordinated by Russian operatives last August. So this has been something that isn't new and I fear that Vladimir Putin has no boundaries. He's not playing by ordinary rules of engagement. There is a mounting case for war crimes. I hope to see him in The Hague one day, but I think, sadly, a lot more is going to happen before that happens. Okay, and Rory Omuraku, the Taoiseach, has uh, accused uh, Sinn Féin of trying to rewrite history here because of the removal of thousands of press statements from the Sinn Féin website uh, over the last eight years that were released in relation to Russia. Uh, And uh, the Taoiseach says uh, that the explanation for all of this is Orwellian. Uh, Why is uh, Sinn Féin flip-flopping, as Michal Martin suggests. Um, not in any way, shape or form. We are updating our website. This happens all the time. I'll be honest, somebody contacted me, whether there was someone in my office who'd be available at some point in time to do a bit of cutting and pasting in relation to um, ensuring that press releases um, were being saved and stored and, and archived. So, as I say, this is just updating and it's the usual stuff from independent newspapers and the government and others. Shock, horror, Sinn Féin, obviously up to no good. And literally, as I say, the music from uh, a horror show on in the background. Look, nothing to see here. 
I like it's an on-story, Michael. I, I don't know what more I can say other than that. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so you would continue to regret uh, the expulsion of Russian diplomats from Ireland uh, if uh, there were poisoning uh, spies, as they saw it in the UK. We're talking about a situation where we said we wouldn't necessarily work on the basis of intelligence. We had seen the difficulties that there were and the mistakes that had been made by the Americans and the British and others if you go back to the war in Iraq. So we just said we wanted to see a greater element of uh, information in relation to that at this particular time. But let's be clear, we're dealing with a situation at this point in time where we have an illegal invasion of Ukraine. Mm. We are 100% behind the Ukrainian people. There is only um, one instigator, that's Vladimir Putin, and we need to do all that we can in relation to putting manners on him, and that includes okay. getting rid of diplomats mm. here, and it also means cutting off the money supply of the Shinshin. Okay. Does that make sense to you, Neil uh, Richmond? Sadly, no, it doesn't. And I actually, I printed off some of um, the press statements that are now deleted from the Sun Sun website, and they do make quite difficult reading in, in light of current circumstances. In 2014, Rory's colleague, the then Sinn Féin Foreign Affairs spokesperson Sean Crow, demanded the abolition of NATO. We see the now leader of Sinn, or the then and current leader of Sinn Féin, Mary MacDonald, saying the expulsion of Russian diplomats is a threat to our neutrality. That was, as you said, after the Salisbury poisonings, mm. and it was intelligence gathered not just by the UK or the US, but also so all other European Union member states who acted in concert. We see statements by McCarthy then as an MEP in the European Parliament against the EU-Ukraine uh, association agreement that is being much lauded now as the first step towards accession. And we see statements as recently as last December from Sinn Féin's new MEP, Chris McManus, um, against sanctions against Russia. So look, to be honest... You know, there is something to see here, but if, if Rory wants to think it's a conspiracy theory, that's to him. We, we, we've managed to save the press statements. They're all there to read. And unfortunately, whilst I do welcome, and I'll be genuine with this, Mike, well, I do welcome a lot of the statements by Rory and his colleague Johnny Brady and others mm. in recent weeks. Sinn Féin do have to be clear with the people exactly that they haven't been consistent when it comes to Russia or indeed the European Union uh, over the last couple of years. And that's for them to explain. OK, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us this morning. Uh, Rory Murakou, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead. Uh, Neil Richmond, Fine Gael spokesperson on European Affairs, a TD for Dublin, Rath Down. And both TDs are members of uh, the Eurocrisis Committee on European Union Affairs. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a, a lot of messages uh, coming out of uh, Ukraine about uh, a no-fly zone and uh, the support people there would like uh, from NATO. We might hear some of them during the programme today. Raise your head to the sky. What do you see there? The Eiffel Tower, a flock of birds, maybe even a rainbow. For the last 10 days, Ukrainians have been seeing the sky like this. But... Even meter-long concrete slabs cannot hold back Russian bombs and missiles forever. Putin has long made it clear that he does not accept the language of diplomacy. His tools are murder and chaos. And if he is not stopped, the war will take over all of Europe. That is why we call on the entire world community to express an active civil position. Come out to the peace rallies in your city. Support the closing of the sky of Ukraine. And let's stop the war together. 
Closing the sky in Ukraine is a message uh, that uh, has been coming uh, from uh, the region for some time. We're now 21 days into this war. Some comments uh, that have been coming to us. Francie in Dunleer says, Michael, I don't want to sound inhumane. My heart goes out to the people of Ukraine. But why wasn't there the same response and attention given from here and other Western countries to the invasion of Iraq and the likes? Why wasn't the Iraqi flag in our faces in 2003? Sean in Mornington says, none of us want to live under Russia as they have hidden cameras everywhere, but it looks like Europe doesn't go in. If Europe doesn't go in and confront Putin, he's going to take over not just there, but everywhere, and he'll keep slaughtering the women and children and destroying the world. This war has to be stopped immediately. Somebody has to confront the Russians. Liz in Drogheda says uh, about the peace talks uh, between Ukraine and Russia that we should all pray for a positive outcome. She fears if this drags on, it'll result in World War III. She's horrified to think about the unnecessary loss of life. Anne Andrade fears for the homeless that we have in this country and how they may be impacted by so many refugees coming here. She says, I really hope they're not forgotten about in all of this. Thank you indeed uh, if you have been in touch with us. And it is, of course, one of the challenges that we face in this country because if we end up with 80 or 100,000 people coming to the country, you've got to add that uh, to the list of homeless people, which stands at about 10,000. Some of them will live with relatives and friends and some of them will be accommodated by kind people, uh, but others uh, will uh, obviously need to be housed by the state. How that's going to happen is uh, an enormous challenge. Uh, But let's uh, hear another one of those messages about closing the sky, this time to the tune of a lullaby from Ukraine. If you don't glow the sky, I will die If you don't glow the sky, mom will cry If you don't glow the sky, he'll lose home If you don't glow the sky, they'll be dumb If you don't glow the sky, the sky will still fight If you don't glow the sky, we'll fill the night If you don't glow the sky, he might win now look in the and sink again. Yeah, people very concerned about dying in Ukraine with good reason now. Uh, thanks uh, to Stephen, who's in Navin, got in touch with us yesterday. We were talking about the price of coal. 30 euro for a bag of coal yeah well wait till uh, we get our electricity bills and our gas bills uh, we'll need another 700 euro a year it seems uh, and there are only 12 months in the year so work it out yourself uh, it's over 50 euro extra a month just for home heating uh, and Stephen says 30 euro for a bag of coal how can anyone on a budget afford this it really is a worry thank God it's March not September I'm already finding it hard to find the money to heat my home says Stephen Marion in Slane says she was sent to hospital with a bad kidney infection a couple of weeks ago because she had a high temperature they put her into the COVID ward even though she 
didn't have COVID. Uh, she had been tested afterwards and uh, the test came back negative. She says she was terrified to be in there, afraid of catching it and wonders why is it that you're put in there just because you have a high temperature. I can understand uh, the anxiety that you felt, Marion, and uh, thanks for getting in touch with us, uh, doing a little bit of catch up today because uh, we have uh, had so many calls to the programme uh, that we have uh, not had uh, enough time to get through uh, all of the calls uh, that have been coming to us as they've been coming to us. Now there's a a real threat in this war or a real fear in this war. It's coming from uh, America predominantly it seems uh, that China could become involved. Uh, We'll hear a little bit more from the Secretary General of the armed forces of the world, if you will, that's NATO. This is Jens Stoltenberg speaking once again, this time about Chinese intervention on the Russian side, of course. So China should join the rest of the world, uh, condemning strongly the brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And uh, 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 any support to Russia, military support, any other type of support, will actually help Russia conduct a brutal war against an independent sovereign nation, Ukraine, and help them to continue to wage war which is causing uh, death, uh, suffering, and uh, an enormous amount of destruction. Uh, So uh, China has uh, uh, an obligation as a member of the UN Security Council to actually support uh, and uphold international law and the Russian invasion of uh, of uh, uh, Ukraine is a blatant violation of international law. So we call on Russia to uh, clearly condemn uh, the invasion and, of course, not support uh, Russia. And we are closely monitoring uh, any uh, um, signs of support from uh, China to uh, to Russia. Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, this guy is really scary. <laughs> I mean, he's on our side, uh, but uh, he holds so uh, many big weapons under his command as uh, the Secretary General of NATO. Uh, We'll hear more from what he was saying about uh, how NATO could involve itself in this intentionally or otherwise uh, later in uh, the programme. But I think that gives a a real flavour of how this war has escalated to this global threat uh, of World War Three. Anyway, more in a moment. And if you do want to get in touch with us, as always this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a memorial service uh, for people who lost loved ones uh, to COVID will be held on Sunday in Dublin as a national day of commemoration. Local events will also take place in Dundalk, in Drogheda and in Navan. But separate to all of that is a special Remembrance Day that is being held on Friday by families across the country. And one of the events will be held in Dundalk at two o'clock at Courthouse Square. Let's speak to Vivian McNally, whose father Dominic died during the COVID outbreak at the Dalgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk, one of 23 people who died in what have become very controversial circumstances. Good morning to you, Vivian, and thanks for joining us on the programme once again. It's been a very long two years for all of us, but uh, none more so than for you and other families who've lost loved ones to COVID. Uh, And on Friday, you're taking the opportunity to commemorate those people. 
Yes, uh, good morning, Michael. We are indeed. Um, the families decided that, uh, along with Care Champions, that to do a Remembrance Day um, because we believe that all the families, you know, need to have something to mark this. It is the second anniversary. Um, it's been a tough two years, uh, especially with us looking for a commission of inquiry. But... Um, this Remembrance Day is going to be not only for people who died in nursing homes and care settings. We would like to invite anybody who lost someone during the pandemic and, you know, didn't get the custom that we usually have, you know, in the grieving process, funerals, wakes, um, you know, to come out and everybody can support each other. Mm. Bring, bring um, a picture of your loved one. You know, we have candles there as well. And it's just that we can all comfort each other on this day. Mm. I think we all understand that, or most of us at least, I think, would have lost somebody and it was impossible to mourn them, as you say. Uh, somebody uh, who would have died, whether it was from COVID or something else during this period, but because of lockdowns, people weren't able to go to funerals or, or get together afterwards and do the things that are, are so normal to Irish people. Well. This is it. I mean, it was just, it's alien to us. I mean, when somebody dies, I mean, we all know the way we would go to each other's home, comfort each other, share some stories, you know, um, about the person that has passed away. And they're the things that we love. Um, And the Irish nation, you know, we are great at that. But um, some of us, um, I know even in my own personal circumstances, my father couldn't even uh, go back to his original home. You know, he was taken um, from Dalgan Nursing Home and from that then he was taken straight to burial. We didn't have a mass. We couldn't sit in the church because we'd been exposed. So, And then we were in isolation. So nobody could come near us. And I know the effect that had on me. Like, we're blessed to have great friends. But uh, it's one of the hardest things that you'll ever go through. Mm. It's um, grieving on your own and that's why anybody you know that's out there that has gone through this whether the person died of COVID-19 you know there was short staff um, in hospital settings as well we don't know all the causes of death we know it was contained within the pandemic but we'd like to show our solidarity with all these people and say we know what you went through you know and we're here this special day let's all remember these people and not have them as a mere statistic. Mm, absolutely. Uh, is there any reason, Vivian, uh, why it's uh, separate uh, to the events that are taking place on Sunday? Well, I believe that um, we didn't actually get an invitation, you know, to these events. So it's kind of like the families have been bypassed. And whilst we understand, you know, frontline workers, of course, the extraordinary work they did, and they have to be recognised, I do believe our government know, you know, the the chaos, the the death toll in nursing homes and what families, they're certainly aware of Dalgan Nursing Home, it has been mentioned so many times, but to not acknowledge it um, you know, and we've sent out invites to them to come meet the families um, like Stephen Donnelly has met online uh, Paul Reid with the Dalgan families they know, you know this is not normal grieving that we have done. You know, this has been an investigation nearly from, you know, April of, two, you know, two years. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, the way uh, 
your father and uh, the other people uh, who passed away in Dalgan House uh, left this planet, I think you would say was as a result of them being failed by the state. They were in the care of the state and the state failed in that duty of care. And I think uh, I'm right in saying that you continue to believe that they are being failed because of the state's lack of intervention and not giving you uh, this inquiry or route to finding out what happened and who was responsible for what happened? Well, it kind of feels like collateral damage Our older people, you know, they were, you know, they may have only had days, weeks, years. Nobody had that decision to make. I mean, and these people, you know, we have to show this can't be accepted in Ireland. We can't accept it as a nation and I don't think most people do. I think the government thought that we may go away. I don't think they thought we would uncover as much as we have with freedom of information. And we're doing that. I mean, you know, I said to you before, the horror stories that we've seen, there was, the, I mean, you have a lot of key players in here when it came to um, Dalgan Home. You know, obviously it's the one I know the most about. So you have the provider, you have um, the HSC, the RCSI, HICWA, all of them are in here. And who did what? Who um, said about the health? Who who asked people what dates exactly? Why wasn't it made available? Why is there not this commission of inquiry taking place sooner? This is what is troubling us because it was stated many times in the government, well, you know, there will be learnings mm. from all of this. And what we find, we have found it for them. We have found so much. And yet... The, our Taoiseach still hasn't said, you know, he said he will, a commission of inquiry, you know, would be too long. But then what is it he's going to give us? What is the mechanism? Stephen Donnelly promised that to November 2020. It's still not there. And it has to be. We will keep fighting for that because if not, Michael, this will happen again. Yeah, and I know that you will keep fighting for it uh, and tirelessly so. Uh, you'll be coming together with uh, all of uh, the families uh, on Friday just to mention that to people uh, again to commemorate uh, the people you loved uh, who've left you over the course of the last couple of years particularly over those few months uh, two years ago uh, in Dalgan House uh, but as you say if anybody has lost someone over that time period that they can meet you at 2 o'clock on Friday at the Court House Square in Dundalk uh, and bring a photograph uh, if people wish to remember somebody. Vivian, I have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much, though, as always. Thank, Thank you, indeed. Vivian McNally, whose father Dominic died in Jalgen House. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. We're all in this uh, together. It was uh, the mantra during COVID. You remember COVID, don't you? Uh, well, apparently, COVID is not over. And it, it seems as though we're not all in this uh, together. There is what uh, they call vaccine injustice or inequity as uh, the case may be and Trocra is calling on you to support people around the world who are still very vulnerable to COVID because they haven't got vaccines. Uh, let's speak to Michael O'Brien who works with Trocra's policy team and a very good morning to you Michael and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Put this into context for us if you would. Uh, what is, is it possible even to put it into context how many vaccines are still needed across the world? Good morning, Michael. Um, well, we know that in the 
higher income countries, which Ireland would be included amongst, that, you know, well over 70% of the population is fully vaccinated, meaning they have received at least two doses of the vaccine. Whereas in the low income countries, there are only over 6% uh, of the population fully vaccinated. So you can see that there's a huge disparity between the numbers in low-income countries who are yet to receive vaccine. And um, this is very much related to the availability and supply uh, of vaccines. Mm. So there has been estimates What that turns out to mean is that there's frontline workers, there's doctors, nurses, healthcare workers of all sorts who have not been vaccinated. There's older, vulnerable people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, There's people with underlying illnesses who have not been vaccinated. And as a result, people are are dying around the world because of COVID. Yes, absolutely. And the reported deaths, you know, have, you know, officially uh, recorded around 6 million globally but that we know is a huge underestimate uh, and that the you know figure is probably multiple times that why is that because there are many cases that are just not being reported mm. so you know the the health um, system within some of the low income countries wouldn't be as robust okay as those in the high income countries and so yes people are dying but they're not necessarily being recorded as COVID deaths. Yeah, well, there's cultural reasons as well where deaths wouldn't be recorded the same way that they would be in the western world uh, people in African villages for example may die and uh, their family may take them out to the woods and bury them so, so absolutely there, there could be yes okay you know other you know illnesses and uh, that you know, people, okay, to come to, uh, and they wouldn't know because they don't have access, apart from vaccines, they don't have access to the tests. So what, you know, we have become very familiar with antigen testing and so on, they wouldn't have access to those tests either. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there's a, a real problem, though, for us here if, if uh, people are not vaccinated, if uh, they have COVID, uh, and if COVID uh, continues uh, to mutate. Well, well, exactly, Michael, because, you know, uh, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And really, you know, Troker is really concerned with how we effectively manage COVID-19 in the public interest globally now and into the future. And so, you know, while we in Ireland now are experiencing something of, you know, a social and economic recovery after, okay, the lockdown, the world as a whole, okay, is building back separately. So it's leaving that way, particularly of the low-income countries, um, behind. And this is reflected, you know, in rising poverty and food insecurity, along with, okay, the, you know, perhaps potential of new variants emerging. Mm. So so the good news is we do have the medical tools and the products to effectively address COVID-19. But the bad news is that, you know, more than two years into the pandemic, these tools and products aren't available to all who need them. And we're pointing out that a key part of the solution is to give everybody everywhere access to affordable, safe and effective vaccines and other life-saving COVID-19 technologies. Mm, uh, And that can be done. Uh, And uh, I think the argument is uh, that we can donate to these vaccines or we could do it uh, uh, another way rather than donating it, uh, that uh, the intellectual properties uh, would be waived on them. Exactly, Michael. And, you know, as welcome as donations are, 
and they have made a difference, they don't provide a predictable supply and they don't necessarily, okay, provide a supply that is going to be affordable um, for, for everybody. So there is a mechanism proposed for addressing this at the World Trade Organization and it is exactly that to temporarily um, provide a waiver for intellectual property rights that would allow more countries and more manufacturers to produce affordable and predictable supply then of generic versions of the vaccine and COVID-related tests and treatments. Hmm. Uh, I suppose we all know the different uh, brands, if you like, the different uh, vaccines that are uh, available and, and that a lot of mine, good minds and a lot of money has been put into developing them. And when you're talking about intellectual properties, it's the equivalent of a, a patent, isn't it, or a copyright. Uh, and you're asking that they'd give over the recipes to somebody else to produce these vaccines. That's exactly it. So it is very much OK, right, OK, to yeah, share the recipe, as you say, um, for the vaccine products. Um, but also, it's really important that it's new companies would be reluctant to actually, okay, right, produce, okay, right, even if they had the recipe, to produce, okay, right, okay, those vaccine products if there was a threat, okay, of legal action by, okay, some of the pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And that's why the intellectual property rights do need to be waived temporarily. So just for the length of time that is necessary to actually get, okay, right, okay, the majority of the population globally um, vaccinated. Can governments force pharmaceutical companies uh, to sign up to this? So, so the good news is that, um, yes, I mean, the governments of the world um, do have, okay, the right through the World Trade Organization to agree by consensus, so it requires all countries to agree, um, to this temporary waiver. And at the moment, it has been discussed at the World Trade Organization for well over a year now. Uh, it was originally proposed at the end of 2020. So we're looking at yeah, discussions that have been basically paralysed by a small group of countries, which unfortunately includes Ireland and the European Union, along with Switzerland and the United Kingdom, um, opposing this waiver. Otherwise, other countries are in support of it. Okay, so the Irish government isn't supporting this. Uh, Why is that? What is uh, the Irish government's position on it? Yes, the the Irish government uh, is basically saying, okay, that it is the European Union, okay, that Mm. determines the position. And as a member of the European Union, right, we go along with it. But really, okay, right, Ireland could really take, okay, some leadership within the European Union on this. And that's what Troker is encouraging, I suppose, okay, your listeners to do and constituents around the country to basically contact their local TDs, representatives, and ask them to raise this question of Ireland's position on the proposed intellectual property waiver with the three coalition party leaders, you know, encouraging them to publicly endorse the waiver and affirming the Irish government's support for the Mm. initiative within the European Union. And you have a a petition as well that people can sign. Exactly. So people go to, you know, the Trocra website, uh, www.trocra.org. Yeah, they will find that petition and how to take action. 
Mm. And thought it was very interesting, uh, as best as I could understand it, Michael, uh, uh, at the time of Omicron, when they were explaining uh, how these uh, viruses mutate uh, and, uh, you know, you'd wonder, like, you know, have they got brains or what it is? But it's... Uh, relatively simple. Uh, they were explaining that in South Africa, where Omicron uh, first uh, was found, uh, that there were an awful lot of uh, the population, high percentage of uh, the population that had HIV uh, and uh, that their immune systems were compromised as a result and that many of uh, the people uh, who got COVID had COVID for a very long time, 10 months, 11 months. Uh, 18 months, as the case may be, even two years in some cases. Uh, and that what was happening was that their body was fighting the virus and the virus was fighting their body. And it was a battle between the two. And as the virus tried to win that battle, it took on a new tactic and then changed its form. And that's how it, it mutated. And then you get this new uh, variant of uh, the virus. And that's okay if it's a mild version, I suppose, Uh, although people will tell you if they get a mild dose of COVID, it's no joke. But uh, what could happen is that you could come back with a a very dangerous variant that would spread around the world the way this virus has, as we've all learned uh, about over time. So it really is in everybody's interest to make sure that the global population is protected through vaccine, isn't it? Exactly, Michael. And, you know, I think the Omicron variant, as as, as you referenced, really shows the possibility, okay, for further mutations. And there's no guarantee that those mutations will be actually milder than, okay, right, those that have previously occurred. So on that basis, we have a window of opportunity. We know, okay, what needs to be done. We know how to do it. We just need a political commitment, okay, to deliver. Okay, well, people can sign your petition on the Trocra website, trocra.org, and look for the petitions uh, section on that. Or indeed, as you say, uh, they can speak uh, to their local politicians and ask them uh, if they wish to support your campaign uh, to uh, ask the politicians to do that uh, as well. Uh, Michael, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us with that. Michael O'Brien works with Trocra's policy team. Now, let's uh, go back uh, to more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. Denise is in Drogheda. Thanks very much for your call, Denise. Denise is very worried. She's worried sick, she says, about the rise in the cost of living coming on the back of both myself and my husband being on COVID payments for most of the pandemic. Uh, we've been struggling as it is uh, and we're only getting back on our feet now and now everything is rising. I don't think the decision makers understand how tough it is for some people. The decision makers as we know it, Denise, <laughs> have changed. <laughs> I don't think it's Michal Martin or Leo Bradger who are deciding to increase uh, the price of gas by 40%. Um, it's out of their hands. Uh, can they do more to help? Well, that's a, another day's work, and we're going to be talking about exactly that in just a, a couple of minutes' time. Uh, but this has uh, got to do with international invasion, which is being compounded by the war, and it could get a whole lot worse. It's bad, it's getting worse, and it could get worse again. Uh, thanks to Paddy Duffy, who was uh, texting us today. He says the Russian military were in Afghanistan for 10 years. Total Russian deaths, 15,000 approximately. They're in Ukraine three weeks 
and have at least half that amount dead every day they spend in Ukraine. It's costing them dearly in manpower and equipment. It's totally down to the fighting spirit, courage and heroism of the people of Ukraine. Putin will be lucky if he doesn't end up like Ceausescu, a court-martial out to the backyard and shot, says Paddy. Thank you indeed, uh, Paddy, for that. Thanks uh, to Tom, who's just sent in a text this second. Tom has COVID. Tom has COVID again, he says. He says he's fully vaccinated and he's being boosted. And he had it this time last year. Tom says he can't get out of bed. He's that weak. Uh, Why is that the case? Thanks very much, uh, Tom. Uh, He says, are are these uh, injections, the vaccines, any use? I I think uh, the reality of the situation, Tom, and, you know, I hope you get well soon, um, but uh, I think maybe the reality of the situation is uh, that uh, you could be a lot sicker if it wasn't for the vaccines, and it's the vaccines that are, are preventing severe illness, and that's what we've been hearing over the last couple of days. People say it's only a mild dose of covid and I think that's how you'd be described at the moment. And you're you're on your back. Uh, we don't want any dose of COVID, uh, even if they call it mild. Uh, we'll just uh, stay with the war for a second and hear a little bit more from the Ukrainian president. Our feelings over the last 20 days, 20 days of a full-scale aggression of Russian Federation after eight years of fightings in Donbass region. Can you only imagine... Imagine that on the on 4 a.m. each of you, you start hearing bomb explosions, severe explosions. Justin, can you imagine hearing you, your children, hear all these severe explosions, bombing of airport, bombing of Ottawa airport, tens of other cities of your wonderful country? Can you imagine that? Cruise, cruise missiles are being falling down on your terrain. And your children are asking you what happened. And you are receiving the first news which infrastructure objects have been bombed and destroyed by Russian Federation. And you know how many people already died. Can you only imagine what words, how can you explain to your children that you just uh, full-scale aggression just happened in your country. You know that this is war to annihilate your state, your country. You know that this is the war to subjugate your people. And on second day, you receive uh, notifications that huge cones of military equipment are entering your country, crossing the border. They are entering small cities. They are giving siege. They are encircling cities. And, and they start to shell civil neighborhoods. They bomb school buildings. They destroyed kindergarten facilities. Like in our city, city of Sumy, like in city of Ohtyrka. Imagine that someone is taking siege, laying siege to Vancouver. Can you just imagine them for a second? And all these people who are left in such city. And this is exactly the situation that our city of Mariupol is suffering right now. And they are left without heat or hydro, or without means of communicating, almost without food, without water. 
seeking shelter in bomb shelters. Dear Justin, dear guests, can you imagine that every day you receive memorandums about the number of casualties, including among women and children? You've heard about the bombings. Currently, we have 97 children that died during this war. Can you imagine famous CN Tower in Toronto? If, they, if it was hit by Russian bombs. Of course, I don't wish this on anyone, but this is our reality in which we live. We have to contemplate, we have to see where the next bombing will take place. Yeah, the president of Ukraine will be addressing uh, the American Congress uh, later today. Uh, that's part of what he had to say to the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, the Canadian Parliament uh, in his uh, virtual address through a translator. It's really, really dreadful stuff. And I thought I, I need reminding you, but uh, I'm sure, like me, uh, it's very hard to know what to say. 97 children dead. Uh, and the war drags on. Michael Reed on LMFM. Heating your home is becoming a luxury and a luxury that will be beyond uh, the means of many people. Board Gosh announcing a 39% increase in the cost of gas and 27% extra for electricity yesterday. Now that works out at about €350 Euro a year extra for gas, 340 for electricity. Add to that 540 that has already been added to the price of gas and electricity and you're talking about €1,200 on what you would have been paying last autumn don't have to be a genius to work out that that works out at €100 Euro a month extra before you do anything. Let's talk to Nat O'Connor, who's Senior Public Affairs and Policy Specialist with Age Action Ireland. Good morning to you, Nat, and thanks uh, for joining us on at the programme. Uh, it'll become impossible, undoubtedly, if uh, something isn't done uh, to help people to meet these increasing bills. Absolutely. And what we're looking for is a strategic approach. The, the National Energy Poverty Strategy expired in 2019 and Age Action is calling for a new strategy to be put in place because we need to look at what we can do because there are hundreds of thousands of people who are now looking at these price increases and wondering how on earth are they going to manage to keep their homes warm. And particularly older people, if they can't keep their homes extra warm, if they have an illness or a disability, then that has you know, serious health effects for people. So this is a, a major concern. I would also be concerned that only a third of older persons would get, say, the fuel allowance, which is obviously a, a big help towards energy bills. But there are many people who are still on a low income, who might have low level of savings. And many older persons are in very poorly insulated homes and they just don't have the ability to, to retrofit them. So they're locked into a situation where they you know, need to just buy fossil fuels to heat their homes. Mm. And it's, it's now becoming impossible for really many people. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you give everybody uh, 100 a month? Well, I mean, obviously, these extra payments that have been given are welcome. But what we're looking for is a strategic approach. I mean, the government has mm. said uh, it's going to dedicate three billion from the carbon tax revenue between now and 2030, just on social protection measures 
to target people who are really affected. And so we'd like to see a more strategic approach to how that money is going to be used. So greatly expanding the fuel allowance would be one aspect because, as I say, only a third of older people get it. So there's many people who are still at the low incomes, but they're just outside the eligibility. And of course, if you're not eligible for the fuel allowance, you're not eligible for the free retrofit scheme either. So there is that issue of, you know, just eligibility. Um, But they also need to look more strategically at the kind of houses people are living in. People who have the worst building energy ratings, you know, the EFG rated houses, they're they're paying more to heat the homes to the same extent. And often they just, they have no way out of that. So they could target more assistance to the people who are just caught in the in the worst insulated homes. Mm. And that'd be another way of, you know, making the money go further, but targeting those who have the greatest need. Okay. Uh, but we're only talking about energy uh, and that's going to get a, a, a whole lot worse, it, it seems, uh, because the increases we're talking about uh, look almost destined uh, to soar even higher. But uh, that's only the beginning of uh, the story. If you look at uh, the price of milk, for example, increased by almost 30 percent. Uh, on the prices being paid last year, potatoes by over 20%. Well, this is it, because energy, I mean, our economy runs on the basis of energy. And so, of course, it's it's the first thing we see is our own, as consumers, you know, the, the, the gas bill, the electricity bill coming in, the home heating oil bill. But then, of course, businesses are paying the same higher costs and all of their costs go up. The cost of transportation has gone up. Uh, which affects obviously people who are car dependent, uh, older people in particular in rural areas, but also affects the delivery trucks and all the rest of it. So as long as we're locked into fossil fuels, you know, these costs are only going one way. Mm. Um, I mean, the, 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 the Russian war in Ukraine obviously is driving up prices as, as a, you know, hopefully a short term matter. But, you know, the carbon taxation is due to take effect in, in the 1st of May uh, and that will raise prices further. And so we need to redirect that money back to supporting people who are most badly affected. Mm. Yeah, but e- even if you do, then they're going to still find it difficult to buy food. The price of fertiliser is uh, double what it, it was and so on. And for as long as this war continues, uh, we're looking into some very dark days, it seems. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Russia is a major exporter of fertilisers and as, as we've sanctioned Russia, we're no longer able to buy those. So there's a big adjustment going on in the global market. And Ireland, of course, is an open economy, so we're open to all those things. But I think really what people want to hear is that the government is not just reacting from week to week in terms of the, you know, the extra sort of 125 euros that was put into fuel allowance. Mm. And that's welcome and it's helpful. And it's helpful that it happened mid-year. They didn't just wait for the budget. But, you know, we need to think this true as to how are we going to make you know, best use of the available resources to help the people who, you know, as you've rightly said, or who are going to find it difficult to put food on the table. Mm. Yeah, and there's no great surprise in this. Uh, I mean, we're talking about uh, gas and electricity today, but we've already seen home heating oil double, uh, a lot of people have uh, said, uh, and a lot of it is out of the government's control, so it's very difficult for them to plan for it. So, uh, You'd wonder um, what it is uh, that they could do, especially given the extra pressure that's going to come on the state as a result of another unknown. At the moment, we've something like five or six thousand Ukrainian refugees in the country, and that could increase to a hundred thousand and everything that goes with that. Well, um, it's it's it's. I mean, we're obviously living in, in in really serious, difficult times. 
Um, I mean, the, the advantage of the, the scheme for bringing in the Ukrainian refugees is that they'd be permitted to work. So that's actually going to grow the economy. So that's, I mean, that's useful. Um, but the the oil situation mm. in the short term, there's very little we can do. Mm. Because obviously the major oil exporters are, are either sanctioned, like Iran mm. and mm. Russia, uh, Venezuela to an extent, mm. or else are, are just simply choosing not to up their production, such mm. as uh, others in the Middle East. And I mean, it is up to the European Union to, to use its pressure on oil producers to provide us with a short-term uh, assistance. But in the longer term, it's all about moving away from fossil fuels. Mm. But our concern in Age Action is that there's, there's older people who can't make that transition. Yeah. They can't. Mm. I mean, nine out of ten older people use fossil fuels. Mm. Half of them are using the home heating oil. Yeah. And if you're on a low income with low savings, which many people are, you can't afford a new you know, central heating system, and you certainly can't afford, you know, a new electric mm. system uh, that might be connected to renewables. So that's where we need the strategy, and we haven't seen it yet. Of course, but uh, I'm just wondering if uh, the government is in an impossible position now, given uh, all of the complications that are compounding all of this, uh, and uh, the refugee situation, just one of them, and whilst all of those people uh, will be very welcomed by all of us into this country uh, because of uh, the terrible situation that they're fleeing from, uh, you'd wonder uh, where they're going to get work, if they are able to work, uh, maybe there'll be work retrofitting homes, uh, but most of them will be women, so that won't work. Uh, and most of them won't speak English, so that won't work. Uh, and we're going to see uh, an additional pressure on the welfare bill, uh, on housing, on health care, on education, uh, and less money to go around as a, a result. So that ties the hands of the government uh, to a large extent, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it does, and it's certainly the question of sustainability. But at the same time, you know, our tax receipts from corporation tax have been soaring. Uh, there's a bit of a tax boom there. Uh, obviously, more people coming into the country, you know, will, will if they're working, they would pay further taxes themselves. Um, and of course, you're going to get a mm. you know a wide variety of skills coming in with people. So the 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 issue really is again, it's it's the government can't keep making short term decisions. They can't sort of keep giving 200 euro to everybody. Um, to tide them over. They're going to have to make some hard decisions on, on how to get the money to people because we, do, we don't want a situation where okay. people simply can't afford to heat their homes. Mm. So, so what you're saying is target the supports, uh, increase uh, the amount of uh, people who qualify for the fuel allowance and retrofit more homes for more people uh, who don't qualify as things stand uh, for it uh, to be done um, free of charge as such. Free of charge or subsidised mm. to the greatest extent, and and we know that the the you know the money put aside from the carbon tax could be better targeted, uh, and that's just it. I mean, because they've they've pledged three billion between now and twenty thirty for on social protection. They've pledged another five billion from that money to home retrofitting schemes, mm. and we think they could target it better uh, because they're 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 missing out you know, quite a significant number of people who just don't qualify for the fuel allowance mm. and then get left out of all these different supports. Okay. That's, that's an example where we could do better, I think. All right, we'll hope for some good weather in the meantime and uh, less need to be heating homes, uh, but it's uh, a serious increase uh, that some people will find uh, impossible to meet. Nat, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That's Nat O'Connor, Senior Public Affairs and Policy Specialist with Age Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Maid in Drogheda who phoned us. Thanks for your call, Maid. Uh, she says she already knows of old people who are turning their heating off to try to reduce the cost of it, uh, and they're cold. 
Uh, feeling cold at home, not turning on the heat, it's not right. There needs to be more financial support for pensioners and those on low incomes. Thanks, Mairead. Shocking to think that's the case, given that it's only the beginning of things and there's worse to come, given those increases that we heard yesterday. Seamus from Dundalk says, if this war continues, we're going to be faced with further rises in the cost of living. We'll all have to make changes to account for that and some of us luckily will be in a position to be able to do that, but we have to accept that there are others who are already struggling financially and it's going to be a choice of heat or eat for those people. It's a sad reality. It really is, Seamus. Thank you for that. Tom. uh, (laughs) Poor Tom. Tom is in bed, flattening his back, as we heard a a few moments ago, uh, with COVID again. After having it uh, this time last year, he has it again. He's flattening his back and he says, even though I can't get out of bed, I'm listening to the show uh, and listening to this talk of €100 extra a month to heat your home. A hundred a month won't affect the politicians. Funny that, he says. Well, it's not funny really, says Tom. Uh, I'm glad to think that you're at least able to muster up a little bit of sarcasm, Tom, even though you're feeling so unwell and hope that you feel better soon. Mary and Trim, thanks uh, for your text as well. Mary says, Michael, talking about fuel prices even before the war or anything else that happens, we were always the dearest in the world. 100 miles up the road, cold, petrol, etc., were nearly half price. Why are we always the dearest? Why is this the case, she asks. Uh, thanks, Mary. Uh, we're dear, uh, perhaps, but we're getting dearer. Uh, let's uh, hear a little bit more about the war uh, from uh, our guy. Uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> I don't like uh, being uh, on the side of NATO uh, and all the tanks and guns and bombs and all of that that they have, uh, but uh, they've been looking, obviously, at what's happening in Ukraine and to the Russian invasion. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its military integration Belarus creates a new security reality on the European continent. So we need to reset NATO's military posture for this new reality. Tomorrow, ministers will start an important discussion on concrete measures to reinforce our security for the longer term in all domains. On land, this could include substantially more forces in the eastern part of the alliance at higher readiness and with more pre-positioned equipment. We will also consider major increases to our air and naval deployments, strengthening our integrated air and missile defense, reinforcing our cyber defenses, and holding more and larger exercises. I expect we will task NATO's military commanders to develop options for our Madrid summit in June. Major reinforcements of our defense will require major increases in investment. I welcome that Germany and other allies have already announced they are stepping up. And I encourage all allies to spend a minimum of 2% of GDP on defense. We must do more, so we must also invest more. To protect peace and freedom and uphold our values at this critical time. Right, uh, that's uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, the Secretary General of NATO, calling on the NATO countries 
to spend more money on tanks and bombs and planes. That's good, isn't it? All right, maybe it's not. Uh, but uh, I don't think uh, the other side are much better. That, uh, I, I appreciate your humane approach, but uh, I didn't see that humane approach. Uh, in all these eight years when Ukrainian forces, uh, Ukrainian armed forces and radicals were shelling and bombing uh, <coughs> Donetsk and Lugansk uh, without any reproach, basically any reproach from the international community, from the uh, no comments uh, from the uh, UN officials uh, on, that, on that issue, uh, Yesterday, yesterday, there was a barbaric attack uh, of the Ukrainian armed forces who used cluster munitions uh, in which uh, Russia is, is uh, uh, accused uh, from uh, based on, on sources which, uh, which cannot, cannot be identified. But they used the cluster munition, munition in the center of Donetsk. 21 persons died, person, uh, died uh, 30 plus wounded. Uh, no comments. I was looking through uh, news, uh, uh, including Western media today. I didn't come across a single article uh, on that uh, on that barbaric attack. He's an incredible guy. Uh, he says that with a straight face uh, as well, blaming the Ukrainians on some of uh, the carnage. Uh there and uh, cluster ammunitions. Uh, that's uh, Vazeli Nebenezi, who is uh, Russia's permanent representative uh, to the United Nations Security Council. Thanks to Margaret, who's been texting us. And Margaret says Putin loves himself too much to press the button. I take it that's the nuclear button that everybody is so afraid of. And she says if he, he did, he'd be the first to blow or melt with all of the Botex he's had. He portrays himself as a hard man, but he's a vain coward. Thank you indeed, Margaret. Thanks uh, to everybody who has been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Are we going back uh, to the bad old days of uh, fuel laundering? Uh, up to 2015, it was commonplace. A colourless marker was introduced. Very hard to wash out of green diesel. But yesterday, revenue officers, along with the assistance of uh, the armed support unit of Angardashi Kana, searched the commercial premises in Kilkerley. They found 14,000 litres of marked mineral oil. Two oil tankers involved in the fuel laundering process. One contained containing 8,000 litres of laundered fuel, a van which acted as a mobile oil laundry uh, and contained all sorts of apparatus and 400 kilos of bleaching earth. Two men in their 50s and 60s are being interviewed by Revenue and neither the Gardaí or Revenue are saying more about this at this stage because it's an ongoing investigation. Let's speak to some local councillors though. Fine Gael's John Riley and Sinn Féin's Tomás Sharkey are on the line. Good morning to both of you. John Riley, uh, does this come as a surprise to you? Uh, not really, Michael. Um, I think um, going back a few years ago now, um, we changed it to what do you call the marker or the dye in the diesel, and um, it's been sort of known locally that the dye, the, the marker was changed. Was obviously the criminality people involved in this have um, cracked basically the code of the new dye about four or five years ago. As far as I know, um, the oil has to be heated up now to a very high temperature, and it's actually quite dangerous to do this procedure, but. Um, there's less people at it, but more sophisticated and bigger operations. And that's what I'm led to believe on the ground. Mm. 
None of these things are often uh, as a result of demand uh, and you get the supply if the demand is there. Tomás Sharkey, uh, the war and the increase at Garage Four Courts could lead to a huge demand for cheap diesel. Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing about the situation, Mike, and good morning to yourself, your listeners, and to John. Good to talk to you all. Um, yeah, we do have a difficult situation where the price of fuel is going up across the world and people locally and globally are finding it harder and harder to afford to fuel their vehicles and to heat their homes. So that's the conundrum that the public are left in, that the people want to find, be able to afford to heat their homes and to, to run their own vehicles. But unfortunately, we're left in a situation where some people will try and provide us with laundered fuels, laundered diesels. And I think the message has to be very clear. Dodgy diesel will destroy your car and dodgy kerosene will destroy your boiler. And I'm asking the public to be extra careful and extra vigilant about the dangers of being brought to use the laundered fuels. Mm. I'm also asking landowners and property owners around the, the listenership in the counties of Loud and Mead to be very careful if you have somebody looking to rent your shed, your store, your property. Mind your business, but also mind your tenants' business as well. Nobody wants... Nobody wants a difficult situation of the revenue calling to a property that you've leased out to somebody who's up to no good. So, yeah, we have to be ultimate careful in that. And unfortunately as well, and I don't like asking the criminals who are engaged in this for a favour, but I am asking people, if you're laundering diesel, number one, don't. But number two, please do not dump the sludge. Well, it's not just your car that you should be worried uh, about because of uh, this practice uh, and your engine will seize. Uh, we've often heard that and as you say your boiler could go for that matter with uh, the kerosene uh, but you could end up very sick or, or worse because of your tap water. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing and we have seen this and you know for many a long year we've been dealing with trouble where the cubes of the diesel sludge, the waste of this of this industry, of this enterprise, are dumped illegally along roadways, uh, in ditches, they break, they bust, and they seep into the water course. Mm. And we all know, and John knows, and I know, and everybody who represents communities, especially around Cross North Loud, we all know of people whose water supply has been contaminated. And it will take generations for this waste to yeah. run through and, and to clear up. From, from spoiled land. And that's it. Uh, you might not get sick uh, because uh, they may have cut your water supply off before you get to drink it. Uh, John Riley, uh, you could be buying this unwittingly yeah. because uh, what we were describing yesterday's, uh, from yesterday's uh, raid uh, was a commercial operation. Uh, and it's not that long ago that uh, a lot of us were keeping our receipts after buying uh, from a, a normal garage uh, in case it was laundered diesel and we were stopped by revenue and discovered to have it in our car. Well, just to go back briefly on Tomás's point, I want to agree with him. Um, first of all, uh, we represent North Loud, and large parts of North Loud have actually no mains water supply. So that area, or mostly a lot of people are depending on wells. So the problem with pollution in the water course is very, very real. Now, as regards, um, obviously this oil is leaking in then to four courts. Um, maybe four courts are buying it unwittingly, but to be honest about this, and I do know a little bit about this because I did work in the oil industry, um, the oil companies, obviously, the major oil companies have a responsibility then in dealing with this. Um, 
new legislation was brought in, new licensing system was brought in by Michael Noonan years ago, and all the oil distributors then all have to be licensed, and they have to account for the agricultural diesel. Now, agricultural diesel is is at a 13.5% VAT rate, and it actually has lower duty on it. So it's meant, obviously, then for maybe a small amount of heating, and but mostly for the agricultural business and the harvest and the silage, which will be coming up in the summer months. So the difference in the VAT rate then, obviously, then uh, this diesel has been turned into the higher VAT rate on the day of. So there's a sophisticated network then of supply all around the country. So, as I say, the revenue commissioners and the oil companies then obviously can trace the green diesel and where it's been bought and where it's been sold. So I think uh, there's a responsibility on the oil companies then to cooperate with this. Um, as I say, the green diesel is the raw material. It's all imported into the country. So there is checks and balances then. Um, in, in there should, There's checks and balances where this diesel is going. But furthermore, for the legitimate trade and they're the people then who are contacting me, um, it's putting their businesses and their livelihoods in financial pressure because they mm. literally can't compete with, with an unscrupulous garage who's beside them. Yeah. And, um, uh, and people that, see uh, the price uh, on the pole, they are very tempted to go in. Of course they are. And add to that, though, the criminality that is associated with this because there's a lot of money to be made. And when a lot of money can be made, the heavies move in, whether it's drugs or cigarettes or, or whatever the case may be. And we've seen this in the past. And if you're talking about 260 a, a litre of petrol, as I saw predicted in one of the papers during the week, people will be tempted to buy this stuff. And if people are tempted to buy it, in comes the criminals. And that puts us all at risk, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the, that is one that, yes, of course, the people involved in this, uh, there's obviously a criminal network involved in this, Michael, and that's always been the case, and it is, of course, with any uh, with any sort of uh, crimes. Um, as I say, there's large amounts of money to be made in it, and um, you need a sophisticated chain of, of distribution around the country. And uh, so, obviously, there is garages, I believe, probably buying small amounts of this to mix in with probably legitimate bought product to maybe sort of, you know, boost their profits or whatever. So, um I can understand um, people being tempted to drive into the place that's necessarily the cheapest, mm. but it, it might necessarily be the best. Mm. Okay. How do you know, I suppose, is uh, the question, uh, because uh, people will want to offer deals to their customers, uh, as uh, the case may be. Uh, is there anything else that can be done at this uh, stage now? If they've cracked the code, as John put it there a few minutes ago, to Moss, uh, well, then surely it's uh, an open market again for the fuel launderers. Yeah, unfortunately, it sounds like it could be a bit of an open market coming through. But as I started off with, if any of your listeners have a storage yard, a warehouse, a shed on the property, and they've been approached by people who want to rent it or want to use it, the advice always is you mind your business and you mind the business of those who are using your business premises. So I'm asking everybody, please be very careful about who's approaching you, looking to use your store, your shed, your warehouse, Mm -hmm. your yard, looking to pay your rent and and the mice come with fresh wads of notes and Mm. and the times that we're living in, that's very tempting. But please be very careful about being... uh, slipping into being part of the network that that brings this because we don't know where it ends. Okay, and people need to be careful, but there are ways of letting the authorities know without putting yourself in danger as well. And the bottom line in all of this, Mike, is as well is we all need to find a way of making fuel for our vehicles and for heating our homes 
affordable again. Okay, all right. I have to leave it there. Thank you both for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Tomás Sharkey and John Riley, who's a Fine Gael Councillor in County Louth as well. That's our programme for this week. Hope you have a lovely long weekend. Happy St. Patrick's Day. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie